Hello, and we are the makers of history. With me, Foz, and Ross. Say hello, Ross. Hello. How are you doing? I'm alright, bruv. Not too bad. Uh, I think we should definitely say that this is actually our second time recording this, because <laughs> the first time we got about 40 minutes into it and it crashed. So, we were both very disappointed. We lost all the recording. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're going to try and just record shorter sessions, na- sections now, and try and weave them together because we can't afford this keep happening because I was well pissed off after it happened <laughs> yeah I mean we've been the podcasting equivalent of like you know like avant-garde cinema doing it in a single take so now yeah. like, maybe there's a reason people don't do that yeah that makes sense to be fair but yeah I was <laughs> we, we recorded like that was two days ago and then we tried yesterday but it didn't quite work out which didn't have the time so yeah it's Friday night for us what is it the 7th of the 7th 23 Friday night, and I'm currently sipping into a very nice glass of wine. Yes. Well, anybody who's listened to numerous episodes of ours will know that I drink what we would colloquially call as hobo juice. (laughs) Strong alcohol that the homeless drink. But I'm I'm showing you a different side. People quite often forget that I'm fancy as fuck. And yeah, so I've got a very nice DOCG Italian Garve, which I didn't totally nick from the missus at all. (laughs) (laughs) At no point did me and the wife have a conversation that went like this. Love, you got any wine in the house? Because I've only got one dragon soup left and I can't be asked to walk the shop. (laughs) And she said she got two bottles of these, but they're really nice. Now she's got one, yeah. So fantastic, mate! What you uh, what you saying? As your day being, what do you know? Who do you know? And what do you think about them? Ah, there's too many questions coming at me. <laughs> well, it's been all right. It's been public holidays the last two days in the Czech Republic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had the wonderous spending quality time with my children. Yay! Yay! <laughs> That's why I'm drinking extensively. <laughs> um, and what are you drinking extensively? I'm on the Sviani today, and I would like you to look at my round two of drinks. Oh, that's better. Yes, okay, I can see what you're doing there. That's more of a thing than the whack-ass thing you made last time. So just to... He's showing up at the... He's got like a... It's basically like a wine cooler, homemade out of a very deep Tupperware filled with water and ice, which makes way more sense than your shallow bath that you gave the beer before, (laughs) which honestly was a very wide, undeep, Tupperware, and it just looked like the bottle was having a bath in some ice. <laughs> to be completely honest, I thought that would be enough. It'd be like you know, like when you go to the fish counter and they put the fish on ice. I thought it was going to be like that. Bottle, bottle of beer on ice. Yeah. <laughs> New presentation, the avant-garde presentation. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I like, uh, you know, I'm reaching the depths of Tupperware technology. <laughs> it's, it's Tupperware technology. Lolly mm-hmm. <laughs> did there. So yeah, I'm on the Sviani, and there's a great thing that Czech beers started doing, like from the sort of smaller breweries, like medium-sized breweries, let's say, like Sviani and Primatore, where they describe themselves as craft brewery, craft beer. It's not craft beer in any way, shape, or form, it's like Czech Pilsner. But because it doesn't mean anything in Czech, they just describe themselves as being craft. Well, I suppose like the whole idea behind craft beer is that it's like small batch, small companied, which it is really mm. like obviously craft beer has a dis- 
there's lots of types of craft. It's, I think craft beer is just a general term, isn't it? That's probably got because it was a new thing when it was it stopped becoming a new thing. It sort of lost its meaning now because you can get yeah. all kinds of craft beer. You can get like really hoppy styles. You can get various different types of Belgium styles. And I think now craft beer is just an umbrella term, maybe for small company. Yeah, I think that's, that's basically what it means. That's definitely what it means in the Czech context. Yeah. yeah, I think it sort of got to that at this in the UK as well, mate. To be honest. Oh, but this white wine's very nice, mate. <laughs> Not used to really drinking white wine, and I've got a bottle, so. Okay, so this is gonna get interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Chase down a bottle, uh, a dragon soup with a bottle of wine. <laughs> span the genres. I span the cultures. You could have invented a new cocktail there. See, yeah, there we go again. See, the, this is what you're CEO of corporate within the <laughs> podcast because like, you come up with these thoughts. <laughs> dragon <laughs> the Italian dragon. It's half Italian <laughs> garve mixed with dragon soup. That's a good <laughs> So, what are you going to teach me, Ross? What are you going to tell me about? And what do we know? Well, I thought it'd be nice if we started this one with a bit of a quote about what we're going to talk about. So this one is from a letter between two kings in the late Bronze Age. So it's from the king of Alashia, which is to say Cyprus, and he's writing to a man named Amarapi, king of Ugarit, which is a city in uh, Lebanon, general area, I think. So would that not have been under the um, at the time under the umbrella of? any other nations is that like yeah, a direct yeah so the, the king of Cyprus is like the over king and the king of Ugarit is like his um, vassal oh okay so clearly a letter has already gone from Ugarit to Alashia and the king of Alashia is responding to it regarding what you wrote me before enemy ships were observed, observed at sea if it is true that ships were observed reinforce yourself where are your troops and chariots are they not with you if not, who will deliver you from the enemy? Surround your cities with walls and bring your troops and chariots into them. Watch out for the enemy and reinforce yourself well. Sort yourself out, mate. I'm alright, Jack. Pull up ladder. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically what he's just said to him. Like, sort yourself out, mate. I Pretty ain't much, yeah. you. You just, like, you've said enemy ships, yeah, so do something about it. Yeah, what do you want me to do? <laughs> So, this letter is coming from the end of the Late Bronze Age, when things start to collapse kind of very suddenly. Um, and in some places, like Ugarit, it ended very violently. So that's what we're going to talk about today, is how this huge complex international system we've been describing came to an end. In a now, bloodthirsty manner, I'd imagine. So, we need to be a little bit careful with the evidence that we have. Because I mean, like evidence. Was well, it shaky? Like... Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, mate. But you said that like the sh- the evidence isn't a, like a complete picture. Um, it's more complete in some places than others, but we need to be careful of how we interpret it. So I mean, dramatic events produce more evidence, right? And we need to be careful not reading too much into what we find. So, for example, if we have a city which comes to a sudden violent end, cities burned down and destroyed. That's going to leave a huge um, archaeological like marker. When yeah. you find it, it's going to be the end of the archaeological layers. It's going to be 
a destruction life is going to be very distinct and visible. This stands out a lot more than if the city just continues existing. So it's going to be the things that we find in the archaeology are going to stand out more on the dramatic side, but that doesn't mean that all of the places are coming to violent ends. The second thing we need to be careful of is who is telling us the story. The victor always tells the history. That's the problem, isn't it, I think? You know what? That's one of the most inaccurate statements about history. I know everyone says, oh, Withers write history, but I mean, like, you think... And there's a famous saying there, isn't there? To the... There's like a... No? Yeah, it's just a famous saying that the victors write history. But you think of like, you know, like a, the narrative of the Eastern Front of World War Two. Well, the Germans wrote that narrative. Um, yeah. Anyway, getting way off topic. Um, <laughs> I mean, when it's this far back, though, it's different, isn't it? Because there's so little evidence we find, I suppose. That's what I'm saying. And that's, because... that's the, yeah, that's the thing. We have to think of who is creating the text. So it's, we're talking, there's going to be, going to be the kings and the state organisations other ones who write things down so that's the perspective things are coming from and king you know, royal inscriptions about the kings specifically focus on the battles the kings fight and what great generals and warriors they are so it's going to be a lot of emphasis on specific battles which yeah. isn't necessarily that important in the grand scheme of things now in terms of where the kind of the weight of the blow of the collapse of the Brumbland uh, Sedge landed the greatest impacts in the eastern Mediterranean. So in the Aegean, so Greece and modern Turkey, uh, and along the coast of Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel. The best records we have... You've, per you've not included Egypt in that? Yeah. Okay, Egypt that seems to be the only place you didn't include. Uh, so Mesopotamia and Egypt get hit less hard. Okay. The best records we have come from Egypt. They kind of... They are our narrator through this period. They describe what's happening to the countries around them. Ah, uh, okay. But, again, we have to be careful. The Egyptian records are very self-centred, and they're very biased. I'm not surprised there. Yeah, no. So they're all about how important Egypt is, how great the pharaoh is, and so on. Um, there's also... We can't fully trust the records one-to-one -one as they're written, because it's also like they become... Um, like a literary trope, kind of. The pharaoh describing his military deeds in this period. Pharaohs steal the deeds of their ancestors, so you have like you know, a wall of text written down. They'll copy that and change the names. So, uh, they kind of steal okay. their so they're fucking names. lawyers, then, that's what you're saying. Pretty much. They, they exaggerate each pharaoh's story. Um, so we have to be a little bit careful. And claim it for their own. Yes. So you have to be a little bit careful about like when they get super detailed about like you know some really specific thing happened. That could just be like one of these literary conventions. Okay. Um, what we can say though is that after this time, throughout the region, people that came after all remembered it as a time of destruction that came before them. The ancient sources that are written in the first millennium BC, looking back at the Late Bronze Age, all of them stress foreign invasion and war. And we get it from multiple angles. The Greeks talk about the invasion of Dorian or Doric speaking people. Um, the or Doric Pete speaking people. Uh, it's a different variant of Greek. So there's these kind of this continuum of like dialect slash language, which are like variants of Greek. Um, but where were Doric people from? 
So the tradition is that they emerged from northern Greece and then they became the ancestors of the Spartans. They kind of settled down the western yeah, side. What's the truth, though? If... Who knows? Okay. Who knows? Western Greece, probably. Um, and they the, that became the like the language ancestor of Spartan Greek. So it's probably a bit like English and Scots. Where oh, so it like, actually makes sense then if it was a language ancestor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still like the 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 different versions of Greek understandable, but like Doric almost completely died out. There's a handful of people kind of on the south coast of Greece that speak it. Okay. Whereas modern Greek is descended from Attic, which was the language of Athens. Okay, cool. Um, then also the Israelites in the Hebrew Bible. This is the time they describe of the Israelites coming into Canaan, the promised land of milk and honey, and conquering it. Okay. Um, also in Babylon, and where did they come from? Uh, is that is that just from the Bible? Is it? That's the biblical account. Okay, yeah. so which like the the Bible, the Hebrew Bible recounts these stories, but they were written down centuries later. Okay. Um, I mean, the biblical tradition is that you know the Israelites were slaves in Egypt and they came into Canaan as promised land. No evidence exists of them being slaves in Egypt. There's yeah, I read no that. No good evidence. Yeah. So I mean, I would guess that they were probably just one of many peoples that were living in yeah. Canaan. And then they kind of emerged into independence after the late Bronze Age collapse. And also in Babylonia, where, as we said, things got less kind of dramatically destroyed. But still, the cultural memory was of a time of chaos and destruction. Uh, specifically, there's one epic poem from the, I think it's the 7th century BC. Um, and it's called the Era Epic. And the gist of the story is that the god of plagues becomes angry and it goes on a rampage through the land the citizens rise up and they burn the temples and then in turn the citizens are massacred by the royal soldiers nomads come out of the desert and overrun the cities and I'm just going to give you a little taste from this poem just to give you a sense of how you're loving the poems man (laughs) I like it when you read me a poem I'm going to do one of those nighttime audio books it's going to be you reading me poems that's going to be your your ASMR yeah (laughs) So to give you a little taste, how people a few centuries later remembered this. He who did not die in battle will die in the epidemic. He who did not die in the epidemic, the enemy will rob him. He whom the enemy has not robbed, the thief will thrash him. He whom the thief did not thrash, the king's weapon will overcome him. He who the king's weapon did not overcome, the prince will kill him. He whom the prince did not kill, the storm god will wash him away. Well, that's fucking grim. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly a happy story, is it? <laughs> no, but you can see how like this cultural impact has been, how people remember this after the event. Yeah, and it's remembered through the stories, isn't it, then, I suppose. Exactly. So let's start on the western edge of our kind of, you know, core area. I want to start on the eastern edge. Well, we're going to start on the western edge. <laughs> this is where it happened first, and it's okay. where the, 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 it's the most dramatic. Oh, it's so hard. Yeah, get out of here. <laughs> Thank you. Even this is a podcast of equals. <laughs> um, yeah, so then we'll start with the Mycenaean Greeks, and we'll start because they're the kind of the ground zero of where this collapsed. So Mycenaean Greeks, uh, time period, just so everyone knows, it's not... 
Spartan Hoplite Greeks. No. This is like pre thousand BC. Yeah. So this one we're talking. Where are we talking in time right now? Yes, we're talking around twelve hundred BC. Twelve hundred BC. Everything we're talking about today happens in the space of about fifty years from twelve hundred. Oh shit! Okay, I didn't realize it was that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So probably should have mentioned that earlier on. Very sudden. Fifty years start to finish. Motherfucker. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So our Greeks and so yeah, like you said, it's not the classical Greece, but you know. Athens and Sparta and Hoplites, we're talking much earlier than that. We're talking yeah. the film Troy with, you know, uh, Brian Cox and Sean Bean. The documentary, mate. Yeah, Brad Pitt, noted archaeologist. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good looking archaeologist at that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so the. In my in Mycenae my Greece, then, so you had this palace complex, so you had cities with. dominated by huge palace fortress complexes. <laughs> And we have this kind of structure of smaller kings who belong in some relationship with one overarching king. Uh, what they call a wanax, the concept of the ruler of all Greeks. Right, the wanax. Right. Yeah, it just sounds like it's a euphemism for me, dick. Doesn't it? <laughs> wanax. Oh, right, in the wanax. Yeah, no, I'll say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think so, it's something in the W. Wanax. <laughs> So yeah, so the king of Mycenae was the biggest and most powerful, and he tended to be like have a superior relationship of some sort to the other Greek kings. Um, was that elected, or do we not know how that works? Was it for no? It's or? very, very poorly understood. Oh, okay. Like even how close is it? Like a king with vassals, or is it like a client system? So there was not one understood. big fat one axe at the top. And then but a we lot don't of know what. Smaller kings. But there was lots of kings. Okay. Yeah. So that's where we get the like. So they had their own, probably, independence and they may have just paid a tribute. Yeah. Potentially. I mean, on, on one end, it might just be a purely, like, informal relationship. On the other, it might be, like, you know, vassal-client okay. relationship. But it, we don't have a good picture. So within, this, within a few decades, all of these kind of palace cultures would come down. Um... The overall culture would survive, so there's a continuity of like art styles and you know, burial practices and that sort of thing, but the culture becomes clearly poorer materially. So that big overseas trade vortex that we talked about working its way around the Eastern Med, that shuts down. Foreign goods more or less stop appearing in Greece. That's mad that such, a, such an event can happen where the whole region yeah. shuts down. It's kind of the islands, bro. Yeah. <laughs> the whole place gets shut down because of like yeah what? But imagine, that's what like, I don't understand I, I yeah. don't think there's an answer because I mean you imagine as soon as something has removed all that bureaucracy administration that makes that trade network function as soon as that's gone it's going to stop really quick yeah. um, during the kind of the high point of the culture you know there's all these lavish grave burials we saw like the, the suits of armour the chariots being buried this stops because hey people can't afford to bury the, the treasure anymore they need that stuff yeah all basically all of the palace fortresses are either destroyed or abandoned in this period okay. two of the big ones which have been extensive I can see you well it's mad that like all the ruling classes get abandoned it sounds like the... I think it, what it is is by this point that ruling structure so yeah 
very huge, very developed, but very fragile. And I think it didn't take very many things to happen for it to start crumbling. And once it starts crumbling, it goes away very quickly. Okay. Um, so there's two major sites which have been excavated. One of them is called Pilos. And it's a place where there was a violent destruction. Um, the fire was... The fire that happened there was so intense that it, you know, broke down the stones of the walls into lime. Um, that, you know, clay tablets were glazed into pottery. It was so hot in the fire that it was like being in a furnace or a kiln. Um, That's weird. Yeah. Whoever burned it really wanted it to burn and they worked to make it such an extreme temperature. You know what it sounds like is probably the answer to that? It was probably big UFO with a lesbian. That would do it, yeah. You know what I mean? Big concentrated laser beams. It mounted steel beams, Ross. It mounted steel beams, you know what I mean? <laughs> Straight for <laughs> <through> them. <laughs> I think you just solved two mysteries. <laughs> um, so yeah, but you have this intense destruction and the site never recovers. Pelos is never resettled. Then, the kind of the biggest centre, Mycenae itself, also was burned. Hang on, the biggest centre Mycenae itself, when you say that, was a city called Mycenae? There was a city called Mycenae, which is where I get the name so, from. Okay, so that's probably where the massive yes. Wallax lived, or whatever yep. his name was. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. So Mycenae was the biggest centre in this age. The king of Mycenae, presumably, was the Wallax. Definitely in uh, the Homer tradition, the king of Mycenae is the one that's in charge. Agamemnon okay. is the king of Mycenae. Where was Mycenae now? Uh, it's on the Greek mainland. It's a bit north of Athens, I think. I think. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so the city itself was burned. Um, later there was kind of partial reoccupation. So we can see people have started moving back in. Um, but that kind of bigger, more complex system has vanished. And the, you know, the architectural remains, the archaeological remains are less complex. The culture is poorer. And within 50 years, there was a devastating earthquake, and that was the end of Mycenae. So. Pretty hell. Yeah. Okay. Now, as you've been trying to tease out who did this or why, the answer is we don't know. Not clear to us who did it or why they did it. I'm going to go with aliens, probably. <laughs> I'll think about it tonight. I'll have a think, but I think it's aliens. Probably aliens. Um. One of the things that does happen is that writing disappears. You know what's weird? How none of the other civilizations have said who's done it, or that we found. Uh, you think that'd be that, a big text, wouldn't it? That one does come up. We're going to get to that. Okay. So if we only relied on the Greek text, we would have no idea at all because the oh, Greeks don't okay. give us anything. But as we're going to go on our kind of journey round, clockwise round the Eastern Mediterranean. We're going to start seeing more evidence of who could have been behind this. It's like a little cruise, this is. East <laughs> Med cruise. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so as I said, the writing disappears in Greece. And this kind of makes sense if you think of it. Because when you no longer have you know, this palace elite organising society, organising the economy, you no longer need writing to organise it's that top 5% and everyone in the country is always living the best life not paying the taxes <laughs> and then yeah like, pretty much when like, it's that decentralised like you can get speak to them 
You don't need to do these massive letters, do you, I suppose? Yeah, yeah, just ask how many sheep you got. Yeah, yeah. Um, Puts up his and... fingers. <laughs> and um, the flip side of it is, you know, the scribal class that exists, you know, these specialised writers writing on tablets in, I forget if it was Linear A or Linear B, one of them. Specialised scribes doing the writing, you can, they're no longer being supported, there's no longer that um, elite economy and palace infrastructure to support these people whose job is just writing stuff down yeah like that that has needs centralization doesn't it because yeah. someone needs to pay them to do it because no one's just going to do it out of interest when you survive on the line exactly there's no one giving them the special status there's no one providing them the food so they can do the writing rather than you know digging their food out the field just saying if you were going to destroy civilization you'd kill all the heads of states wouldn't you if you're aliens no, you'd kill all the civil servants. Yeah. That would collapse the society in a yeah. week. Well, this is sort of what happens. It killed the leaders. There's no, the Basically. civil servants are the, 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 the people writing. Yeah. I think we just cracked this case wide open. <laughs> wide open. Amazing work to take too fast. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's sort of like all of this cause, you know, a breakdown of the traditional political structure. So, the concept of one overall Greek ruler, this idea of the Wanax disappears and there's no single ruler of the Greeks until the Macedonian conquests of like Philip and Alexander the Great uh, so that's nine. Hang on, who's years. Philip? Uh, Alexander the Great's father. Oh, okay I was going to say, cause everyone, knows, everyone knows who Alexander the Great is, conquered from Greek guy, started in Greek, conquered everywhere all the way over to India basically didn't Yeah, he? exactly, and Philip, his father kind of set the stage for him Cool. Um, but so yeah, this so is a thousand years before that. Yeah, pretty much, like nine hundred years earlier. Okay. Yeah, nine hundred years earlier. So in all of that time, not a single thing close to a centralized rule. Again, it's a bit like with Italy after the end of the Western Roman Empire, that there's no Italian ruler until eighteen sixty. Yeah, that's mad, really. When when you think about it, like because. It all started from Rome, spread it out. You think there'd be an Italian identity there? Yeah, well, there wasn't like sidetrack, but there was an Italian identity. Definitely, writers talk about that, but there was no Italian ruler until the fifties, eighteen sixties. Anyway, um, another episode. Yep. <laughs> now, from the the Greeks looking back from the classical period, so our Greeks of Athens and Sparta in the fourth and fifth century, they had a tradition that all of this destruction and collapse was caused by the invasion of Doric people. So as we said, the ancestors of the Spartans. Our sources... And we know they're the ancestors of the Spartans, for sure. Yeah, yeah, Spartan dialect is definitely a Doric Greek dialect. Okay. Um, that sort of adds into that mystery of the Spartans being badasses. Basically, they came over, conquered Greece, and then formed Sparta. Uh, it'd be more is like a, idea? a language group moves in, and they create city-states. I bet they sold that, though. That was the story, weren't it? How our people came and conquered. I bet they uh, must have sold that question, as a story. That's a good question. I mean, like, I think for the Spartan, like, idea of their state, they looked back, they looked back to the 7th and the 8th century, and they had this mythical king called Lycurgus. BC? Yeah. Who gave them their, like, laws. Um, I don't know, off the top of my head, how much the idea of being Doric invaders played into Spartan identity. Um, That's interesting. That's one worth Google. Sorry, please yeah. continue. I keep throwing you off track here. I'm sorry, mate. But on that topic, Eric Klein completely rejects the idea that 
this was all caused by a Doric invasion. He says, categorically, we look at the evidence of Doric culture archaeological finds and it arrives too late. They entered southern Greece after the collapse. What's your other mate, sir? Phantom uh, Irope says the same sort of thing. Uh, I can't find the page, but... I would type that as, I know that's only two sources, but these are very well-regarded people. So yeah. I think that's pretty sure that that's the case, then, isn't it? That it wasn't yeah, the, the archaeological people. evidence suggests the Doric people moved into southern Greece. And that was oh, just a sales app by the Greeks in their writing. I mean, you know, there are people around about it 700 years later. Mm, it's okay. it's going to be a bit garbled. It's a bit like, you know, if you ask the average English person to tell how the Anglo-Saxons came to England, <laughs> yeah, you're going to okay, get a very yeah, mythological yeah. version. Kick um, off, won't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As played by Clive Owen. Great documentary. <laughs> Great Alright, so moving on from Greece then, we can come to Anatolia. So this is mainland of what's now Turkey. And so this is the core of the Hittite Empire. And the Hittites yeah, have a very boys. ancient history going back to like 2500 BC, something like that. Um, during this period, so around 1200, the Hittite Empire would collapse completely and a Hittite state would never recover. Um, so it's one of the players which disappears from the game absolutely. Oh, fucking hell. Okay. So, They'd already been kind of on the decline in some ways. So we said before that they had like this royal dynasty and there were then competing branches of the royal family. And they were these were the warriors, weren't they? These are the warrior chariot guys. Yeah, they're the ones who are like one of the people traditionally ascribed to bring chariots into the region. Okay. Um but yeah, so they have these kind of competing branches which are weakening central power and they'd had problems controlling western Western edge of Anatolia and the northern edge. They've been fighting uh, against rebellious vassals and against tribal groups. So they they've been a bit unsteady. You know what's interesting? How this is really. It sounds like. You know the story of Genghis Khan, where he's like conquered all these lands and then his sons inherit and then it all goes to shit? Yeah, something along those lines. Do you know lines. what I mean? Like, not it seems a little bit like that. that. Yeah, like but not. That. But it, it's along yeah. those lines, isn't it? Where you've got like this massive conquest, and then after the ruler dies, it all seems to go to shit. It seems like that ruler, the, the rulers are what hold, holding this whole structure together. It seems to be like their their children, and then there's you've got all yeah. that like vassalage. When when second and third sons are being given land and power and setting up future rivals. And it's like you can look at like you know like medieval France where you know the king's second sons become dukes and then it makes it very unstable. Um, so I think it's a bit it's like all that. vying for power against each other. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. so do we know if do you know if the Hittites had like a ducal structure? Um, they definitely gave junior branches of the royal family their own lands and their own powers. They okay. Did dish out title like lands and titles, and then of course it set up rival power centers. Um. So we know that they're kind of fighting wars on their periphery. Uh, we know that they're fighting sea battles around attempts to control the Cyprus. Uh, Cyprus, by the way, become, suddenly becomes very, um, very much more wealthy and powerful around 1200 BC. So it's very tempting to, because it happens almost exactly in line with the collapse of the Mycenaeans to see that like the kind of that Cyprus just steps into that void that's been created. 
and they take Mycenae's place in the trade network. Or, or the Cypriots were, it, they caused the Or they're implicated in the, in the collapse. And so definitely some people have suggested that. That would make sense, though, because if you looted all that shit, yep. took it back to Cyprus, like you'd be boss of jobs, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd be number one. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's a possibility. I mean, I'm not massively sold on Cyprus as a cause. I think it's more like an opportunistic thing stepping into the space, personally. Is Cyprus the island that's now half Turkish, half something yeah, else? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What is it? It's half Cypriot and half Turkish. Half Cypriot, Greek and, Greek and half Turkish. So Cypriot, Greek, that's not part of Greece, they're their own country. No, it's a, the Republic of Cyprus, and there's a Turkish puppet state in the northern half. Okay, that's another conversation. We'll talk about that after because I don't understand what, why that happened. We'll talk about um, that after, though. Yeah, off that's topic. Let's talk about that. Episode. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so there's we know that there's sea battles going on around Cyprus as the Hittites tried to assert their control over Cyprus and by the end of the period failing to do so. And we know that there's wars in Western Anatolia. It goes where, back to that thing with the Cypriots, don't it? They're an island, they're going to have a mega neighbour. Yes. Definitely. Same as Britain, like obviously, our, you know, the reason why we got so massive was because we were in Ireland with this massive technological navy, and we managed to sail and look at stuff, find it yeah, first. Yeah, exactly. These are the first recorded sea battles. Um, and also in Western Asia, we have records of uh, conflict with the city-states and the western edge of Anatolia. Um, and again, this Hang is on, feeding... when you say Western Asia, what are you classing as Western uh, Asia? The Western edge of Anatolia, so the western oh, okay. coast of modern Turkey, oh, okay. like Izmir and places like that. And this comes into the Trojan War again. Um, you know, this is this is the period when the Trojan War is kind of, where the destruction of Troy is dated to, from okay. the archaeological So that sort of makes sense. It does. It's a, it puts okay. us in a context of like chaos and violence, but it also makes it unlikely that the, the traditional Trojan War story, i.e. the King of the Greeks organising a Greek army to go and conquer Troy, becomes very, very unlikely. Because they were fucked. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, but, yeah, so the the layer of Troy, which is like the city of Troy, that is destroyed at this time. Oh, okay. Oh, so that makes, that's interesting. Yeah. So I would like my curious mind would be thinking what in the story of Troy would make sense for the time period. I mean, for me, I think the the Troy story whole ties together a lot of different elements, a lot of different things that were happening in the region at the time, kind of half remembered and passed down stories, which all get mashed together. Why would the storytellers though blame it on the Greeks? Greek storytellers. Oh, okay, so they've claimed it then. And they're they're definitely drawing on memories of Greek soldiers going to Western Asia and fighting. That's definitely a memory that existed. But I think they've kind of tied together a lot of these different things. Okay. Um, Now, there's different factors that could have caused this. One of the things that gets highlighted is that possibly the cause of the collapse of the Hittites is due to famine. Um... There's definitely textual records that there was a shortage of food. But that can that's not necessarily like ecological effects. That can be military effects. You know, if you get yep. blockaded and you can't get food in, there's going to be famine, isn't there? Yep, can be. It can be also like, you know, armies rampaging through your lands are going to burn the crops. 
But on the flip side of famine as a cause of the collapse is the fact that Anatolia is different to say Mesopotamia or Egypt. In Mesopotamia and Egypt, the farming is based on irrigation from the rivers, right? Mm -hmm. So canal systems and all of that. Anatolia doesn't have big rivers. It's all about collecting. It's all about rainfall for the watering of the farmland. Well, that's fucked, honey. That's like you're onto a non-starter there, isn't you? Yeah. So, I mean, for one thing, it meant that food was always insecure in Anatolia. Yeah. So, a sudden shortage is not likely to cause a complete collapse in the same way. Yeah. Because people had always dealt with, some years we have food, some years we don't. Yeah, okay. Now, the Hittite major sites, as in Mycenae and Greece, there is a archaeological layer of destruction and burning. Uh, the Hittite capital, Hattusha, is also burned. Interestingly, though, it's the palace and the public buildings and the fortifications are burned, not the residential areas. There's no Targeted. That was aliens, then. It was targeted <laughs> so well. If you want to take over a nation, you kill you kill the governors, and then you kill the defence force, don't you? So you destroy the defence force, you kill the governors, you wipe that out, you leave the innocents, move on. I feel like aliens, you... mate. I know it's aliens. It must be. It's I feel like you've been playing too much Stellaris lately. I have been playing a lot of Stellaris lately. <laughs> that is correct. But I'm just saying, it probably was aliens. It's better than anything else you've put forward yet. Ross. Well, the That's other thing is. So we can say, like, okay, if it was an outside army sweeping over the walls, you'd expect everything to get burned and pillaged, right? No, not if they were smart about it, they'd smart lasers, rather than, like, you know, when World War Two, we just dropped bombs and they weren't guarded, yeah. unguarded bombs. Mm-hmm. They haven't got underguarded lasers, they've got guarded lasers. Okay. But, <laughs> thank you for clarifying. It's a future, mate, that. it's a future, that's how it works. <laughs> but, um... Or the other alternative, I'm just going to throw this out as a <laughs> If the destruction and the collapse is coming from inside the city, if the people rise up against the elites... It would work like that as well. But I'm still down with that. the aliens' tracks, to be honest. What you've said makes more sense and is more logical, but i got a good feeling about the aliens. Fine. I think that's definitely going to sell more copies of your upcoming book. Yeah, it might come a novel, Fuzz and the Aliens, volume <laughs> one. And your History Channel series. <laughs> um, and we see the same pattern of destruction across the sites in Anatolia. The same thing of like the palace, the state buildings being destroyed, but residential areas are untouched. So maybe it's people rising up, maybe it's invading If it up. was people rising up, though... Why would they be rising up? What are they upset about? We've really established, like, you know, the, that horrible debt slavery system. They've had enough, you reckon? You reckon yeah. that would be the cause of that? Because that's a system that gets worse and worse and worse, right? Because we yeah, saw that, like, the course, elites yeah. grow bigger and bigger and bigger, making the situation worse. Um, another thing could be, like, if you have an invading army, maybe the poor people decide to raise up, rise up, throw the gates open, join in with the pillaging. Okay, yeah. In some locations, we see that the cities are just abandoned. So there's no destruction, they just stop being developed. There would be one city called Chachemish, which is in northern Syria. And that would continue existing. And it was ruled by a branch of like, the, the Hittite Hang on, so group. it continued through this entire period of destruction? Uh, yeah, it, this one city continued throughout. It so survived. It must have been, 
must have been Annie, was that sitter. Talk to me whilst what happened to that sitter. Well, the rulers of Chachamish were from like a junior branch of the royal dynasty, right? And after the collapse of the Hittites, the rulers of Chachamish would be like, okay, so we are the Hittite great kings. And even though they're only ruling over one city, they start talking to the other surviving powers like, okay, we're the Hittite great kings, you must call us brother and that sort of thing. That sounds like a cop-out. That sounds like a con. Yeah, I think no one was going with that. Everyone oh, okay. Like, you're, you're, you're the kings of Chachamish. Sit down and get back in your place. Oh, okay. So they trolled you on. That's funny how the, the record shows that they trolled you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they took them out themselves as being the great kings, but they're very clearly not. The consequence of like the breakdown of Hittite power is that for the first time in a long time, the areas of northern Syria are able to gain independence, and like northern Syria, northern Lebanon, and the cities there are able to be free, the city-states. Um, the other side effect of this is that by removing the Hittites from the game, there is no longer a direct connection between Egypt and you know, the, the Mediterranean and Mesopotamia. So Syria and Babylon become isolated. Oh, uh, okay. Oh, Babylon really struggled with that? Yeah. It, it completely fractures Babylon and Assyria from this international system. And Egypt also no longer has a land border with anyone that they can talk to. Anyone of significance? Yes, exactly. And without the stabilising power of the Hittites, trade and diplomacy in the region break down and stop. Oh, just a quick interruption, but I've run out of water. Oh my god. This is a crisis. <laughs> Please continue. I've got wine to be sorted. I've got more wine. Happy days. We had a little cut in there. I don't know if you can tell or not, but there was a little strategic cut in there for me to get more wine. Ross, please continue with the story. Okay, so let's go down then on the coast of the Mediterranean and we get to uh, Syria and Palestine, Israel, Lebanon. So, the cities down in this region were all wealthy and a part of this trade network. All of them have become kind of very specialised in specific goods. It might be like textile production or something. I suppose they're right in the middle of it, though, where they are, aren't they? Yeah, Obviously, exactly. they're only over the sea to Cyprus, that seems to be a trading hub. And then they're part of this vortex. You'd imagine they'd get very, very wealthy very quickly, wouldn't they? Yeah. So these cities are all wealthy, and they'd all kind of specialised as their place in that trade hub. And they were all wealthy cities up until the end. And the end for them came very suddenly. Um, there was no sign for them of trouble before about 1190. So it couple of decades after Mycenaean Greece is starting to go wrong. And we're going to focus on one specific of the cities, which is one called Ugarit. Um, so Ugarit is in modern day Syria, it's close to a city called Latakia. What, is that near the coast or...? Yeah, it's near the coast. Okay. And Ugarit was a trading hub and it's kind of its core trade was items from Assyria on their way to Crete. That was sort of, I suppose that's geographically, that's how it was going to happen, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, straight line, east to west. Okay. That's kind of their core business. And they're also a central hub, just as this vortex, you know, the ship stopping in as they go around in this circle around the east. The Med Ugarit's one of the major uh, stopping points on that journey. In the 1190s, we start getting warnings in letters from... BC. BC, yeah. 
Um, we start getting warnings in letters describing raiders out at sea. And there is one particular letter that is very famous. Uh, the reason it's famous is because when it was first discovered, people believed it was found in a kiln. So it was being fired, ready to send, and the city was destroyed before it could be sent. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, unfortunately, we nowadays we realise it's probably not the case, and it was in oh. storage. But it's still a good story. <laughs> but... <laughs> yeah, it's still a good story, but it's completely, f- like, bullshit. Well, I'll read you a bit from the letter, and you can see kind of the... the the tone of rising fear and danger so this is from the king of Ugarit to the king of Alashia, the king of Cyprus who is his kind of like you know overlord so it goes father the ships of the enemy have been coming they have been burning down my villages and have done evil things to the country does my father not know that all my troops and chariots are in Hattie and that all my ships are in Lucca. They have not yet reached me, so the country is undefended. May my father be informed of this. Now, the seven ships of the enemy that have come have done evil things. If other enemy ships appear, send me a message so that I know. That's bleak as fuck, man. So at this point, it's closing in. The web is closing in on the city. So, uh... Ugarit undergoes a sudden and violent destruction. Um, the walls of the building of buildings are found collapsed. The plaster from the interiors of the walls is burned. There's a destruction level of ash and debris, which is up to two meters high. Uh, but there's still no mention of who it is. Mm, not clearly from them. You'd think they'd mention them by name, wouldn't you? Well, we're getting some clues, so we know that it's people that are coming via sea. We have mentions of the ships and the ships of the enemy. Uh, I think in the next episode, when we start looking at the candidates, we're going to look at the Egyptian sources, and then we're going to start seeing some names. Uh, But for this kind of first wave of destruction, there's nothing very solid. It's very unclear where it's coming from. We see very large-scale destruction. Uh, In the ruins of Ugarit, initially the belief was that it could have been caused by earthquakes, but in that destruction layer there were bronze arrowheads found in the in the debris, and that kind of definitively rules out earthquakes as a... Well, yeah, arrowheads. Uh, earthquakes don't <laughs> shoot arrowheads, do they? Generally speaking, no. The destruction of Ugarit was so complete that the city was not uh, lived in again for another 700 years. So it's properly done over then. Oh yeah. Bloody hell. Okay. Happy days. So yeah, so that's, that's kind a of bit our... depressing. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of our first view of the kind of the shock to the late Bronze Age system. So we're talking about a period of maybe twenty to thirty years. And already we've seen two civilizations have been wiped off the board. This is major, isn't it? This is some major thing that's happening. So we'll get in next time to try and understand why this happened, or try and understand the different arguments that exist for what happened. And I think we'll look a little bit as well at what came immediately after this huge complex system came out. I bet there's some disagreement on what happened, aren't there? There's a lot of different theories, and I think there's a lot of them that have at least something why you could say, yeah, that makes some sense. 
my personal belief is that it's going to be a combination of factors. I think it's no one thing by itself could cause it, but a few things clicking together, and it's like a cascading effect. Basically, you just said you're not sold on any of the ideas, but you think it might be all of them. I'm sold on the idea, not on any one thing as a critical thing, but I'm sold on the idea of if this happened, you know, this situation could happen, and normally that wouldn't be a problem, but then also this happens. Neither of those two things in isolation will be a problem, but two of them together, now we have an issue. But we'll get into that more next week, and we'll start looking at also some of the more, like, the newest, fresh off the press, archaeological discoveries as well. Ooh. Taster? There's some stuff that came out after I wrote the series, so... Oh, nice. Oh, that's that's cool. Wicked. Alright, then. That's us done, I think, ain't it, for today? Yeah, we'll wrap it up there. Um, so, as always, thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed what you're listening to, please um, review or leave a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Tell your friends about us. If you know someone that likes history-related podcasts, then please, if you enjoy it, then share them. Uh, I want to give a shout-out to some of our listeners, because we see... We can see some general data about where we get listens. We don't like we're not watching you. It's okay, you're safe from us. <laughs> but we from are watching analyst, you. Though. But we are yeah, watching you. Draw the curtains. Draw the curtains now. Um, yep. From our analytics, we get a sense of where we are. So we know there's a couple of guys in Ashburn, Virginia. So shout out to you guys. Yeah, big up the Ashburn massive. <laughs> safe out to you guys. Hope you're living well couple of guys in Dublin so I hope you're having a great time as well yeah you guys have a good time in Dublin as well you got Guinness on tap so I'm sure they're having <laughs> a good time but yeah if you think people that you know would enjoy it then please share it with them um, as always if you want to give us any feedback we have the Twitter if Twitter still exists by the time this goes out <laughs> which is at Makers of History we also have an email account which is history at gmail.com uh, do we have anything else? um you can telephone me on no, no, <laughs> <laughs> no just uh, email just I think it's a big things. one yep. and whatever else there is uh, like you said fucking Twitch but or not Twitch what's it called Twitter, Twitter. but yeah I think that's going into some minor challenges at the moment so yeah so I think we might be migrating to Instagram or something yeah what's, uh, what's the one or the Rumble we can go on Rumble uncensored it's oh. so like an it's, history uh, of the Dark. Yeah, History of the Dark. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yeah. But I'm wicked. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. So thank you everyone for listening. Uh, goodbye. Bye-bye.